Welcome once again to the Community Broadband Bits podcast, a production of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. This is Lisa Gonzalez. This is episode number 33, and Christopher interviews Billy Ray, CEO of the Glasgow Electric Power Board in Glasgow, Kentucky. Glasgow has the distinction of being the first community that created a municipal telecommunications network. Billy Ray tells us about the community and the story behind the network. He also discusses the fight the community had with the incumbent providers and a long journey from an idea to a successful new utility. Here are Billy Ray and Chris. I'm here with Billy Ray, the CEO of the Glasgow Electric Power Board and probably the father of municipal broadband. Uh, thank you for joining us on Community Broadband Bits. Okay, Chris. Glad to be here. Glasgow, Kentucky um, has long... Uh, been a place people go to learn more about municipal broadband. Uh, you did it before anyone else, and so I'm hoping we can start by learning a little bit about Glasgow. Yeah, Glasgow is uh, a community of about 15,000 people and a generally uh, agricultural portion of the state of Kentucky, the south-central part of Kentucky, which means that it's uh, if you drew a line between Louisville, Kentucky, and Nashville, Tennessee, you'd find Glasgow along that line halfway in between. So we're, we're roughly 100 miles from either one to our north and south. Uh, the only other real distinguishing thing about Glasgow and why this uh, happened here is that it is one of the 2,000 or so municipally owned electric systems, which means that the city happened to already own uh, an electric utility, which means it had the poles and uh, bucket trucks and uh, billing systems, uh, all that sort of stuff, and that was was and continues to be the, the real kernel uh, or seed of uh, reasoning for why we got into the broadband business. Right. We've actually seen um, we've actually seen that most of the communities that have been involved with building broadband networks have been municipal power utilities. Um, or have been cities that have those. Um, but it seems that you were intimately involved with this idea from the beginning. And uh, and I'm, I'm curious if you can t- take us back to that time. It, it wasn't something that someone else came up with and dumped it in your lap. It seemed like you were inspired to start building this infrastructure. Well, that's right. I, uh, I came back to my hometown. Glasgow was my hometown. I came back in 1983 as a a 28-year-old uh, CEO that a board had taken a chance on a really young guy, and I, I really appreciate that more all the time when I look at 28-year-olds and I uh, think, <laughs> kind of say, what were they thinking? Uh, but uh, that's only important in that we came back with a real clean sheet of paper and fresh outlook on how municipal utilities ought to operate. And the other the other part of the DNA was that uh, the the utility that I had left I was the chief engineer there had just experienced the installation of a cable TV system in that community for the first time. This was 1981, and and there were still communities that didn't have cable TV, and Bowling Green, Kentucky, was one of those, and I was there to witness the installation of a cable system and learned a little bit uh, about what a broadband network was, and when I combined that piece of DNA with uh, what I had learned, because also having a mini computer uh, was a new thing in those days, and uh, when I thought about how we operate electric utilities, and and by that I'm talking about uh, how the humans functioned to make decisions about how we operate the electric system 
uh, utilizing the crude data that we got largely from people calling in and saying, hey, my, my lights are off, or I saw a giant flash on a pole, and we use those tidbits of data accumulated in a very analog fashion to make decisions about how we operated electric utilities. And, and all those pieces began to come together in about 1986 when uh, I began to talk to my board about this vision that you know, we could probably operate electric utilities a lot better if we had better telemetry instead of just people calling in and telling us what they had seen, if we uh, could actually measure uh, uh, quantities at our substations and, and someday even deeper, uh, closer to the home than substations, uh, if we could really uh, be in a position to change the way energy is delivered and, and shaped for communities, and you know, boards are made up of lay people, and, and they appreciated that, or they accommodated me talking about that, but when I began to say, and it might be possible to, to start building this network to do this telemetry on by first putting competitive cable television on it, now, that was something that immediately I learned resonated with everyone. Uh, you know, people weren't that crazy about having energy usage patterns shaped, uh, especially back in the 80s for everybody, anybody that ever heard the words smart grid. Nobody had even heard the words broadband, really. I knew that you were an engineer, and just as you were describing that and the way that you began thinking about it, it, it reminds me in many ways the way um, Harold de Priest uh, thinks about it and describes it um, in Chattanooga, which is mm-hmm. um, you know now probably the most cited uh, municipal network because they've been so aggressive in terms of uh, offering the highest speed services. But um, do you think that, that that you being an engineer and having an engineer at the, the top level of, the, of a municipal power utility makes a difference? in that regard? Well, I think it did back in those days uh, because uh, once you recognize how software works and the the hunger for data and that the way we were gathering data back in those days was, you know, archaic, 100 years old, and that systems were beginning to evolve that would allow you to gather this data and make a lot of these decisions that were made by a team pouring over maps and and uh, you know pieces of paper with notes jotted on them that you could do a lot better and you could turn a lot of that decision making over to a, a piece of an operating system instead of a human system. Uh, I think that was important. Now today, you know, it seems like so many communities now uh, focus on just that they want faster internet service or they want they hate their cable operator, and that's been common ever since the very first talk I made on this subject back in 88. Uh, the common thing in 10,000 cities across the United States is that they hate their cable operator. Uh, and, and that seems to become the uh, more common uh, nucleus of a community broadband effort today than what I still contend from an engineering perspective to be the real reason to do it, and that's that we want to build fewer uh, coal-fired power plants or any kind of power plant for that matter. You know, We think that we can use a combination of technology and telecommunications to shape electric demand to live well within the capacity that we've already built for the foreseeable future and and make a much smaller impact on our environment by the the production of electric power. 
So you um, you saw all this coming back in the late 80s, and you made the pitch that you thought the best thing to do was to start building this and uh, and offering the television services as well. Um, I'm curious uh, how others reacted, including the uh, the existing cable provider in your community. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that's pretty well documented. The uh, luckily not the board that operates the utility uh, was uh, cooperative and and wanted to give me plenty of room to try new things, and uh, the local city council, not as immediately cooperative, but cooperative enough, really, uh, and I can answer the question more expansively this way, that the the incumbent cable operator at the time was so incensed at this that, uh, you know, they began, you know, shipping all kinds of high-powered attorneys to Little Glasgow to meet with every group they could uh, to talk about how crazy this idea was. And it was probably their reaction to the idea being so offensive and, and telling the uh, the decision makers of the elected officials in a small South Central Kentucky community that they were too stupid to uh, build this network that probably uh, put the, the finishing touches on the decision to go ahead and do it. You know, they well, while they weren't sure they trusted Billy Ray, they were damn sure they didn't trust these uh, suits from New York telling them they were too stupid to do this. So they uh, they pretty well galvanized it themselves. It sounds like a very similar dynamic to uh, to Lafayette uh, in the Cajun country, where once there as well, the suits were telling them that, you know, you Cajuns just aren't smart enough to do this. Right, and, yeah. and they had the same rebellious attitude. And it's not a great bit, not a great uh, strategic plan. No, it's not. But it does make me proud <laughs> to be uh, an American because, uh, you know, it's it's one of those traits that we have that uh, that I think not every um, I've traveled the world a bit and I've always been surprised at how not everyone sort of rebels at that sort of uh, situation. Well, there's probably a reason why we uh, chose to overthrow the king. Absolutely. Um, so you uh, you had a big fight. Um, can you sort of describe the contours of it? I think it ended up lasting multiple years, didn't it? Oh, yeah. It, uh, first of all, the, the first battle line was in the court system, and they filed a, a multi-count federal uh, complaint against us, alleging everything under the sun from... Uh, uh, the fact that the city granted them a cable franchise in 1961 and didn't suggest that they uh, that that franchise might not be exclusive, and so they were alleging that the city was in breach of contract uh, all the way through to uh, claiming that the wiring in every home and business in Glasgow belonged to them and that there was no way that somebody else could come in and use the wiring, even, you know, wiring staple to the wall in somebody's bedroom closet. Well, you know, they've, they have made that case successfully in apartment buildings, and still they can block competition across the nation in many apartment buildings by claiming ownership to that wiring. The 92 Cable Act uh, pretty well uh, opened it up for residential uh, stuff and, and any wiring that's not contractually stated to, to belong to one entity other than the building owner. I mean, I know because we that was one of my first trips to Washington was to, to beg uh, then-Senator Wendell Ford to help us with this problem we were slugging it out with in Glasgow, and, and I was surprised to find out he was willing to do that and got some language inserted in there to make it easier. But then also we helped ourselves because not, not just the federal complaint, but they also filed a state law complaint based on real estate law on that very issue, that as we 
began to actually complete the construction of our network and start to hook people up, we would ask the homeowner or business owner, do you own this wiring? And if they said yes, then we would use it, uh, disconnect on the incumbent from the outside of the building and plug our network into their wiring. And they tried to uh, stop us from doing that, and it went to a full-blown jury trial right here in district court, and uh, circuit court, I mean, and the uh, jury came back and said that the wiring was a picture of the real estate, and uh, the owner could do with it as they pleased, and it was that defeat that caused... uh, Telescripts Cable Company, the incumbent at the time, to come to us and ask to settle the federal uh, complaint as well. Of course, in that, we had countered. Since they also, as one of the uh, features of their competitive efforts, went street to street as we were building our network and and canvassed the area and lowered, offered people uh, $5 a month cable TV if they would stick with them for the next year and so that caused us to file a Sherman antitrust uh, counterclaim against them which had we been victorious and I'm pretty sure we would have been uh they we could have gotten treble damages against them and so they finally settled all the the litigation and decided to just slug it out in the streets in a competitive battle that it reached from 1988 until 2000, when they, when we had acquired about 70% of the market, always more expensive than them. They continued to undercut us on rates, but we were able to convince people, as people are convinced every day, that price is not the only consideration. You know, when you've got an option to buy these uh, high-tech services from a local company, from your neighbors, and uh, go to board meetings and uh, uh, participate in decisions about what programming is going to be on and what rates are going to be charged. We were able to take about 70% of the market by 2000, and Comcast, who had acquired the system by then, uh, came to us and said, we're tired of slugging it out in Glasgow and charging these low rates. Uh, make us an offer, and we'll sell you the rest of our stuff and get out of town. And That happened. The Sherman Antitrust complaint, what was the basis of that? Was it that they were offering a service for below the cost of providing it? Yeah, designed to not uh, just make customers happy, but to uh, cripple a competitor, uh, especially one in a David and Goliath situation where they had market power and uh, we were a new competitor and uh, they were willing to charge rates that were that were completely unsupportable uh, as being uh, valuable to their stockholders and uh, just designed to damage uh, a new entrant. Because we we do still see that from time to time. Uh, Most recently we saw it here in Monticello where the incumbent took a package that had every single channel on the system um, that they sell for $145 in every other town and began offering it for $60 per month um, guaranteed rate for two years. Uh, in talking with people who are familiar with those contracts, there's almost no way that they were um, able to pay for that between the the, the internet package and the, and the and the television package. Their costs had to be above eighty, maybe even over ninety or a hundred dollars per month. Sure. Yeah. 
and uh, and I'm just it's interesting that I haven't seen anyone else file a uh, the Sherman antitrust uh, complaint. That's why I wanted to follow up a little bit on it. Um, and so yeah, that it was, might be interesting. I don't know if Randy is still alive. Uh, I haven't heard from him in a number of years. But Randy Young, uh, an attorney in D.C., uh, who's retired now, uh, mm-hmm. writing a novel. The last I heard, uh, came up with that uh, response, and uh, it scared. Apparently, uh, the com- the council for uh, telescopes at the time enough that they decided they'd rather settle than pursue that. And so then ultimately Comcast decided that they wanted to leave town. And what is the value of their system when you already have a system right next to it? Is it just that they're gone? Well, uh, they also, uh, to avoid competing with us, they had uh, spent, spent capital to build farther and farther out into the county away from our footprint. So there was some value in expanding our footprint, uh, and but the value of the actual plant that we acquired was zero, uh, really. Uh, it, it's freed up space on our poles, but the main thing was just to consolidate the market and, and not uh, have the confusion of transfer and the expanse of people uh, going from system to system and having to roll trucks out and move people over, and if they get mad, Next month, want to move back. So, and, and the 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 comparative price, you know, the price to build in those days was probably something like three thousand dollars per subscriber, and we were able to buy it a uh, at a <laughs> at a fire sale price. If Comcast uh, was the sole provider and and you had abandoned your efforts, you know that Comcast would have turned around and raised their prices uh, substantially. I'm curious how EPB dealt with being the only provider. Did you then start jacking up the rates every year? Oh, no. I mean, we've operated it as as a nonprofit uh, business, just as our charter from the state requires uh, the whole time. Uh, The only time we've ever raised our rates has been because the programmers have raised theirs. Uh, I was just looking at a graphic I prepared for a board meeting the other day. In 19... 88 when we first started our cost of programming buying the 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 rights to the programming for the basic tier which in the early days probably was 40 or 50 channels now it's up to about 100 channels but uh the the price for the programming in the early days was less than three dollars per subscriber uh and we charged our basic cable rate that we started off with was 14 dollars a month actually 13.50 uh, so two dollars of that was almost three dollars of it was programming out of a thirteen fifty charge. Today we're all the way up to thirty three dollars for uh, that hundred channel basic package, but the programming cost now is about twenty nine dollars. Uh, so you know it's almost all programming, and the only way we can do that is that the internet came along and once we added internet service to our broadband network uh it was more profitable has always been more profitable than cable tv because you don't have the programming to pay for and uh that pretty much subsidizes the cable rates so uh when we add our internet revenue and our uh, uh cable tv revenue together uh, along with our expenses the two added together our goal is to break even, and uh, because all we really want to do is provide those services to make our customers happy while we're getting bandwidth 
to every single electric meter so we can begin to do the real work, which, which is uh, changing the shape of their electric demand. The question I have in describing the margin from those earlier years is, would you be able to make that work today? I mean, even with the extra revenue from the Internet services, I have to guess that the fact that you were able to amortize your costs over a longer period of time when there was more of a substantial margin was a, an advantage. It is, but one of the and you're really getting at the heart of this matter. In many states, uh, the legislatures have, uh, at the behest of the cable and phone companies, uh, uh, created these business models or business plan requirements where that uh, a city is only allowed to do this if they guarantee, you know, that they've got this business plan in place and that they're going to make money, you know, immediately, which is pretty much the incumbent's dream. It means that there's no way for the the consumer, unless they're just determined to buy these entertainment products from someone else, not really to save any money. You know, those laws guarantee, passed by a state legislature, guarantee that uh, their citizens are not going to enjoy the benefits of competition. Uh, if you now, you know what you need to be able to do is to recognize that these products are kind of loss leaders anyway, and that the real the real objective is to not build another uh, five billion dollar nuclear unit uh, somewhere in the state because you need uh, uh, to supplement your electric power generating capacity for four hours a day during peak times. You know, that's the target. You know, it, it will become, I contend, that, that high-speed Internet service may become just a throwaway thing. It's provided like oxygen. For, it's, it's free uh, in order to get people to allow you to reshape, to talk to their appliances and, and you know, begin to reshape electric demand so that we uh, reduce what we're doing to, to acquire energy. In, in fact, some people, um, Bill St. Arnaud up in Canada and others have been making this case as well. And it only recently, uh, I only recently learned just how large the electric power system is in terms of investment. I mean, there's, um, to my understanding, there's no other industry that's invested anywhere near the amount of money. And so when you look at the, the savings. There's no other industry that's also you know, having the same impact on our environment as that is. You know, that, this is the big target. Everybody wants to get down here and talk about, yeah, but I want cheaper HBO. Well, you know, that's that's okay. It's interesting, but it's it, it's so minor compared to the big issue of changing the way we uh, provide electric power that it, it becomes infinitesimally small. In the in the final few minutes, I, I want to sort of steer away from that a little bit because I think some of the other benefits that you've demonstrated in Glasgow um, uh, would be valuable for communities that don't even own their own uh, municipal power system. Um, you know, you mentioned that you operate on a um, a nonprofit basis, but you've also calculated some of the figures as to how much your communities benefited and saved by um, by the lower prices and by having some of that money recycle in the economy. Absolutely. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about how that's benefited Glasgow. Well, uh, you know, it's it's uh, pretty easy to look at, at the community of a, an island, you know, a small community, uh, our economy, uh, or our treasure uh, uh, that we can accumulate in, in all the wages and goods that are generated in a small economy. Uh, obviously, 
uh, if you want to have choices in uh, local restaurants and local grocery stores and what have you owned by local people, you need to have local money circulating around that can be spent there. And if you just do a simple exploration or comparison of the delta between what the average cost of cable TV is in the United States to what we charge in Glasgow or many other communities that are, are operating these systems on a not-for-profit basis, you the calculation is pretty straightforward. You know, we can see that there's easily two and a half to three million dollars a year, and this is in a community of only fifteen thousand people. Two and a half to three million dollars a year is getting trapped in the local economy instead of being siphoned off to the stockholders of a an MSO, a big cable company. And when you take fifteen thousand people and drop an extra three million dollars in the street. Uh, and tell those people they can spend it however they wish. A lot of it gets spent at local mom-and-pop-owned stores, and it helps the community flourish and to, as we call it, eat our own dog food. You know, we uh, we uh, also talk a lot and participate in sustainability efforts and promote localism as the way to make our economy more durable and more resistant to the kind of buffeting that we all got in 2008 as, as everything fell apart. We we use that same uh, frontier spirit that caused us to say we're smart enough to build our own cable system. Now we're saying, you know, we're smart enough to figure out how to, uh, spend, how to source what we need here from locally owned merchants so that some distant board can also decide if our unemployment rate here is going to go through the roof. It's all part of the same DNA. Thank you so much. Uh, okay. I look forward to, to talking again. Um, and uh, and I hope that um, those who are new to community broadband take a few moments. Um, your Glasgow website has uh, a, a great history on it, and there's a lot of valuable lessons for, for people to learn. Um, and it, so many of the same questions are still being asked, and you got a lot of the answers up there already. That's right. Yeah, you know, the, never, never think that the status quo is your only choice. There's, there's always a way to get around it. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Chris. We want to thank Billy Ray for taking some time to visit with us about Glasgow's network. You can learn more about the network at glasgowepb.net. You can also learn more at muninetworks.org. Follow the Glasgow tag for access to a variety of resources on the network and the people who built it. If you have any questions or comments, please send us a note. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. Our handle on Twitter is at communitynets. This show was released on February 12, 2013. Thanks to the Mojo Monkeys for the music licensed using Creative Commons. The song is called Bodacious. <laughs>